five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. A quick note before we get into this week's podcast, which was recorded at the recent Montreal Space Symposium. This week, the annual International Astronautical Congress is taking place in Washington. There's plenty of news from the Congress, and you can find updates at spaceq.ca, along with spaceref.com and nasawatch.com. One company, Maritime Launch Services, has already made news as they announced that the Yuzhnoi Design Bureau had successfully completed the qualification test of the fully integrated upper stage of the Cyclone 4M rocket. We have video of the tests. Okay. This week's podcast has two segments. The first is an interview with Launch Canada's Adam Trumpur, who provides an update on the Launch Canada Challenge. Of note, and subsequent to the interview, Adam told SpaceQ that the November event had to be postponed as not all the approvals could be done in time. In the second segment, I speak with Lawrence Reeves, the founder and leader of the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge, which engages students from universities across Canada. I'll point out that both Launch Canada and the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge are not-for-profits that did not start with the government, nor do they get any government funding, though the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge does get in-kind government contributions, and Launch Canada is likely to get some form of in-kind government contributions as well. All right, listen in. All right, so we're at the uh, 2019 Montreal Space Symposium. I am here with Adam Trampour, who is the head of the Launch Canada Initiative. And he's been on the podcast before. You can just look for his name and you'll be able to listen to what he said. But he's going to give us an update on Launch Canada and where things stand and where things look like they're going. Adam? Hi, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a really eventful year as we've been uh, you know, trying to carry this forward. So we're uh, we're going full steam ahead towards an inaugural competition in the summer of 2020. Um, we've been in active communication with the students, and there's been a, a ton of support for doing this. Um, we've had a really good relationship with the Canadian Air Force, who have been very interested in trying to support this. They're they're kind of working through things. But, uh, you know, as you saw, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marchetti uh, in the talk this morning mentioned uh, that they're that they're working with us on that. So that's, that's been fantastic. Uh, we've had a good re- relationship with Transport Canada as well, um, who have been realizing that there's, you know, clearly demand among students for, for doing these rocketry activities here. So that's been a big piece. Um, Launch Canada is now an officially incorporated not-for-profit. So we're, we're up and running. We've got some uh, some great sponsors um, probably I think you carried the story that uh, Macfab uh, precision machine shop had uh, had stepped in to support this they, they've been wonderful in their commitment to uh, to student projects and things like that so fantastic to have them on board 
Um, I've also been cultivating a really close relationship with the other uh, major rocket competitions. So I'm uh, on the advisory board for the Spaceport America Cup now. I helped run uh, launch safety and flight operations um, for uh, for the competition in New Mexico uh, this past summer. Um, I was down presenting to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics uh, Liquid Propulsion Technical Committee um, this summer on student rocketry and how much value there there will be if you know industry experts connect with this and especially if they help students to learn how to do these things safely because that that's going to be a major piece too. Now, with respect to what Launch Canada is trying to do here in Canada. Um, I heard today that you may have an event in November, which is what you were originally planning to do in August. I know that it's not confirmed, it's not on the books, it's not happened, it's not official at this point, but what can you tell us about what would that be if it actually went ahead? Absolutely. So... To, uh, to do this, obviously, you know, we're, we're doing this for the first time. Um, our partners in the Air Force are looking into doing this. This is, like, totally outside of anything that they've done before. Uh, this is new as far as Transport Canada is concerned as well. So there's a lot of learning to be done. And so we, we had the idea fairly early on to try to do kind of a smaller Pathfinder event where we could start working through some of these little logistical details on, on a smaller scale. So there are uh, a number of Canadian teams that did have rockets ready to fly. And these aren't, you know, super sophisticated space shot attempts or anything like that. They're they're fairly normal, but they, they seemed like a good kind of baby steps way to get into this. So we are, uh, we're pushing hard, um, and the Air Force is working hard to see if we can get uh, get a demo launch together for the first weekend in November, and this would be you know a couple rockets, uh, relatively loose, relatively informal uh, get together. Um, but it would give students a chance to fly and uh, you know bring some of this community together. And what kind of altitude would some of these small rockets fly to? So these rockets generally are the type that uh, that the students currently launch at Spaceport America. So these are mostly sort of 10-foot altitude category. 10,000 foot. 10,000 foot, yeah. Anything go higher? I thought I heard something about one that might go a little higher. There might be a team looking at going to maybe 20,000 feet. So the the site that we're looking at is interesting because the, the airspace is fine, um, but some of the area is fairly forested. So the higher it goes, the chances of getting it back get less. So but there's no safety concern. There's no safety concern, no, exactly. And so th- this is the beauty of launching stuff at, uh, at a military test range. And this would be Cold Lake, Alberta? Th- this would be Cold Lake, Alberta, yeah. Okay. So remind me, because I don't have all the history in my head. Um, when was the last time this was done in Canada, and has it ever been done for a student-type rocket like this? Um, uh, uh, Other than the Black Brant, which was right. totally separate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Black Brant is obviously a professional research rocket. Yeah, um, and that was there, a long time ago. Though. I mean, when was the last launch in Canada? 
I think that was 1999, back Something when like Spaceport that. Canada was right. was a thing in Churchill. They that did was the one the, launch. That, right. that, that was the first and last launch there, yeah. yeah. So we're talking uh, like it's, it's been 20 years now. Yeah. Since anything's launched in Canada. Certainly any, anything of that scale. Now, what we're looking at right now is sort of smaller. Of course, this within, is small, yeah. It, it, it's, it's within the category of what's called high-power rocketry. So yeah. there are uh, rocket groups across the country that host launches like this. So this is... This is, in a sense, within that body of experience. But have they gone that high in Canada? Uh, yes. They yeah. Have? Okay. They, they, they have, and uh, and some have flown higher than that. Oh, okay. So we're, we're not really breaking new ground in that sense. Okay. Um, but what we are trying to do is lay the foundation for an event that will allow people to go much further than that. And one of the things that we've seen is as this whole student rocketry movement has been maturing and becoming more sophisticated, they're getting a lot more interested in testing out new concepts and new technologies. So we want to give them more of an opportunity to fly things that they couldn't fly otherwise. Like liquid propellant rockets are a great example of that, where um, the existing Canadian rocket hobby rocketry organizations will not allow those types of launches at their events. Um, so we're trying to pull together the expertise so that we can actually support this and give them opportunities to do that and do it safely. And so it sounds like you have uh, buy-in from the Department of National Defense and that it's just a matter of crossing, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure everything's in place before it can go forward. Crossing the fingers as well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of interest, and I think, uh, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Marchetti was, was certainly indicating that uh, they're very supportive. Uh, they obviously want to do their due diligence, um, make sure that they're not taking on any undue risks, and make sure their legal people are happy and all that. And then there are all the, like, millions little details of how you actually execute on this so there there are a lot of people working this out but there there's definitely some some high level support right. for the concept so if this um, I suppose Pathfinder event does happen um, the next step then is to do the full-blown event next summer is yep. that correct can you just give me a brief sense or the audience a brief sense of what that would be like Okay, so for the, the full event next summer, we're, uh, we're looking at a competition that's going to have three different main subcategories within it. So there are going to be two launch categories. One is going to be for rockets flying to 10,000-foot altitudes, and this is going to be kind of the entry-level challenge. It'll look a lot like what they currently do at Spaceport America, but it gives new teams an easy way to, uh, to approach this and get involved. And then there's going to be an advanced launch challenge, which is going to be limited to teams that build their own liquid or hybrid propulsion systems um, going to somewhat higher altitudes but one of the major focuses for that challenge is going to be on the systems engineering approach for their rocket so we're going to let them define their requirements and then they'll be judged based on how effectively they manage to deliver a system that fulfills that um, but the other piece we wanted to emphasize in this competition as well is basic technology and innovation and the, the reality is you know 
know, if you've got one year to build an entire rocket, that doesn't give you much time to really drill down into any one aspect of it. But in fact, you know, there are certain areas of rocket engineering that are more challenging than others and are also more ripe for innovation. So we wanted to give teams that wanted to really go in depth in certain areas an opportunity to do that. And so we're going to have this technology development challenge where we'll take almost more of a science fair kind of approach. So if one team wants to demonstrate a super lightweight liquid oxygen valve and another one wants to test fire an engine and maybe another one wants to work on telemetry or avionics, they would be able to enter with those types of projects. And along the way, we want to place a heavy emphasis on the entrepreneurial piece of this as well. Get them thinking about, you know, what's the bigger context for this? Is there a market for this thing that uh, they've developed? Uh, so we, we want to try to introduce that so they can understand what the launcher industry needs and how they can work to fulfill some of that. All right. So to make this happen, one of the things that you're going to need to do, which I know you've been working on, and, uh, and that is uh, you need money. Yep. And so you, you've got MacFab, who came out as a strong supporter. Yep. Um, I don't know how much money they pledged, but you've got, some, you've got them on board. Um, so you're, you're still looking to uh, get enough money to put the event on. And also, is the CSA going to be involved in any way? Um, haven't uh, haven't gotten any official uh, buy-in from the CSA. And the CSA, I refer to as the Canadian Space Agency. Yes. Um, we've, we've had some conversations. They're certainly aware of it. Um, actually, during uh, President uh, Laporte's talk today, a student uh, asked him a question. He certainly indicated that they're aware of it and they're they're kind of interested. So we're, we're talking. Okay. Um, Definitely, uh, definitely looking for, for more uh, more financial support. We've got a good foundation for what we're trying to do. The nice thing about this is that it's very scalable. So, I, I I certainly have grand visions for what I'd like to be able to do, and that goes well beyond a competition. You know, it includes workshops and training and things like that that can help but, these students. So, for for next year though, you feel confident that you've got enough to start that. I, I think we're we're pretty close to where we need to be for uh, for next year. Yeah, not not quite there yet, but I think we're we're going in the right direction. Well, thank you for the update, Adam. My pleasure, Mark. I'm with Lawrence Reeves at the Montreal Space Symposium. This past week in Quebec City at ABB, you conducted the critical design review for the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge. And so maybe you could give us a bit of an update on uh, how the this iteration, which is what, the fifth? The fifth iteration of the Canadian Satellite Challenge, how the Canadian site, uh, Satellite Design Challenge uh, iteration is going? Um, it's been going very well. We have a very interesting, I think interesting, and the teams have all um, said so, an interesting mission concept, which is that of the selfie sat, whereby a amateur radio operator can send the command. They, they would reserve a pass ahead of time when the satellite would be overhead. And they would actually send the command when the satellite is as close to overhead as possible for the satellite to take the picture and then immediately downlink it to that amateur radio station. So um, I've, I've heard from a few amateur radio operators who love the idea of this and say it would be, uh, it would be 
wonderfully received around the world. I, I see it as something that can be used as an educational outreach um, tool to get you know, large gatherings at fairs or science centers or you know, something of that nature at universities or even at schools. Anywhere an amateur radio operator can bring his or her gear and set it up and make the link budget to the satellite. So, it, you know, the, the teams are really engaged on this. Um, we had a few surprises in the critical design reviews in that um, a couple of new teams did extremely well and a couple of more established teams that seem to have passed their designs along, um, iterated and refined a bit, but there seems to have been a bit of a knowledge loss of that design. So they have the design that has been worked on all along, but they don't have the knowledge that some of the team members took with them when they parted. And, and that was very surprising in a couple of cases. Um, and also wonderfully surprising for a couple of new teams to suddenly have done so well. And along with the uh, critical design reviews. We were at ABB, and ABB hosted a couple of workshops for the students. One was to attempt some soldering under microscope to see how well they can do it to uh, something that would be acceptable for use in, in uh, a spacecraft according to NASA standards and requirements. Um, so they they loved that absolutely. Um, some of them did quite well, but still saw that it's, it's a very difficult skill to learn. And of course, ABB uh, has a reputation for spectrometers, spectrometry, if that's the right word. Um, so they have set up a little uh, tutorial on spectrometry and had a couple of machines set up for them to test out at the end. Uh, plus, we had a tour through their facilities, and it's, it's a new building there and quite impressive. A uh, very large manufacturing area, several clean rooms, TVAC room, and um, you know it was a it was a wonderful workshop, a wonderful location for all the teams to see, and um, it, it actually came up quite um, obviously, overtly that ABB is looking to hire some new people. And um, I, as I said to the organizers who hosted us, that this is a great group of people to look at. And in fact, there were one or two who right away perked up when they said ABB is hiring. Um, and you know that was a hope from uh, in the Satellite Design Challenge from the beginning. The idea that if we had these workshops at various companies, we brought the students there, got the company representatives to meet the students, um, you know, they will be wonderful future employees when they graduate. And uh, it is really nice to see that is happening. So um, for those of you who are interested in ABB, um, I did do a podcast uh, on ABB about a year ago, so just search for it. Uh, you'll find it and you'll learn more about uh, ABB itself. Now, uh, in this iteration of the challenge, there are 12 university teams, about? Uh, about 10, maybe, oh, maybe only 10, I believe. And who are the new ones? Um, well, the new ones, they were kind of involved in the past, but only peripherally, were uh, Windsor and McGill. Um, first time for both of them, I believe, presenting at the CDR. Okay. And... Um, you changed things up this time. Mm -hmm. 
um, which was significant because before you would let them design the satellites and the payloads and go through that process. So uh, was it strictly an outreach reason that you decided to do a switch and have them all design the same type of satellite? Yes, the idea was to make this a um, a global educational outreach of space activities mission. Um, Now, of course, it's a three CubeSat and they can put two small cameras in there. There's lots of room for secondary payloads. And most of the teams, if not all of them, have put a secondary payload in there as well. And in many cases, it is similar to what they had as their primary payloads in the past. Now, so ABB, ABB has been obviously a sponsor, of, sort of. Well, it, I mean, they hosted the event. They hosted the event. In that case, yes, it's an in-kind contribution, an in-kind which, contribution. which we love to get. Yes. Now, uh, considering this is a um, selfie sat, um, the cameras themselves, are they being sponsored by somebody or provided? They're not, although um, one of the judges works for another uh, Canadian optical company and he is interested in investigating the idea of sponsoring the CSDC to use and to provide the cam- their, their cameras the uh, for the teams to use in the future. And, and you know, certainly we would be interested in considering that. But we won't say which name it will. We won't now, no. I don't want to put pressure on them. Uh. I can speculate. but we I probably can. Um, so, okay. Um, what's next in, in, in the process here for the teams? Um, next in the process, now with the end of the CDR, we've given the teams lots of feedback about what they should reanalyze or correct. Uh, nominally, it's they would start with the build phase. Um, now, again, because of the very compressed schedule, the CDR could probably, in a any other project, and the maturity of the design in many cases, you would only consider a preliminary design review, and and you know, we we recognize that. Um, but the teams will start uh, integrating their subsystems and uh, assembly integration and test phase, leading up to performing a launch vibration test probably next June. We've done that at David Florida Lab every time in the past, and, and um, all indications are DFL is uh, happy. And that's and a Canadian Space Agency facility, for those who don't know. Correct. In Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And, and all indications are they are still incredibly happy and looking forward to having us there uh, next summer. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a completed quasi-flight-ready spacecraft. Uh, We encourage the teams for the learning experience to come with their models uh, or their their qualification models, engineering models, whatever they have, and we get to instrument the spacecraft with accelerometers, two on each axis. They will have done some structural analysis to say when we subject it to this vibration, here is the response we will receive at various areas in the spacecraft. And so the instrument put the, put the accelerators on to the spacecraft at those locations and measure it and check that against what their analyses were. And, you know, even if it isn't a perfectly ready 
even close to flight ready spacecraft, we still encourage them to do that because the learning experience they get there is absolutely amazing. Working with the DFL engineers and technicians and learning from them and you know, it's, it's part of the mentorship process which we've really tried to incorporate into the CSDC. And so after that, uh, the vibration test happens, uh, in Ottawa, is that when you do the final review? Mm-hmm. And then you decide who... Yes. We, after the vibration test, we see if it comes out of the pod, if there are any parts left over, and once in a while there is, and whether or not it will um, switch on and start its deployments, and we do a, a bit of a functional test. Um, in the past, we have had... The winner in each case, I would say, and, and you know, we could not take that down to a launch site, but we think um, we could, within about six to eight months, work fairly intensively with that team to bring that CubeSat up to all of the launch qualification paperwork and testing that they would need to be able to launch it with um, somebody like NanoRacks. So, um, now, I've asked this before, but... Uh, and I'll ask it again. Um, for this campaign, because I haven't asked it for this one yet, is there going to be funding this time around to get it onto nano, give it to NanoRacks and to get it up to the space station? And- Currently, there isn't. Um, we're always trying. I'm always trying. Um, I'm putting in an application to the ESA Fly Your Satellite right. uh, program. We were successful with Concordia after the end of the first CSDC. Um, and there were complications which led to them just not being able to keep up to the schedule that that ESA had set for them. Um, And we've adapted to that. So I'm I'm still very confident that um, we will have an excellent application to ESA. And if selected, we would be able to do so. The alternative is trying to raise the funding and uh, And go commercial. And go commercial. And it is a challenge. I mean, we... We have a fairly small budget of somewhere around $80,000 over two years for the entire competition. And so trying to find enough to get two hundred and fifty to 300000 Canadian for a launch um, is a very significant step for us. Now, ESA, um, if you get accepted to the program, is there a cost to you for that? Or is, or is, that, most, is that borne by them? Um, there are costs for the entrance in, or the, the accepted universities into that program. So yes, we would um, start doing our own fundraising in order to cover the costs of being involved in that. So what, is, what would be the cost if you were to go the Easter route approximately? It would be, oh boy, that's probably something we should cost cost out. Um, there is travel involved. All of the reviews are over, uh, I believe it as tech in Netherlands. Um, so there is travel involved, which was certainly not something that the, the schools, the universities were um, anticipating having to but pay. But there's no actual cost per se for ESA to then take it and then to actually take it and part of their payload to the space station? Not as far as I know. The, the launch their, course, they, they, we provide it to them in at the time that they say we're flight ready. Wanted, flight so, ready. So for them, it's just, um, uh, so they bear that cost. So Correct. Basically, your costs are to, to actually prepare to, to be able to you know get all the paperwork, to go over there and, 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 and actually do do the meetings. and, and then Correct, yeah. And so, so that's a modest amount of money compared to 
to launching yes. uh, with somebody with a commercial provider. I thought with uh, with Nanorax it might be you know a hundred thousand dollars or so. If uh, is it? But yeah, I've heard lower costs. Um, <laughs> some of them are we talk to them. These are the confidential talks you hear from some yeah, people. Yeah. Of you know, they don't want the to- the real cost sometimes to be known. Uh, but I have heard of lower costs, and I've even talked to them about a lower cost and. If you're willing to fly, fly standby, to, to use the aircraft analogy, or, um, airline analogy, you know, here's our satellite for a lower cost, you wait until there's an opening sometime in the future. And we would be happy to do that if we went that route, you know, if, if that was what our funding um, dictated. Right. Um, so if you're out there and you're a Canadian company <laughs> and you want to see, support some a Canadian satellite, in space from these students uh, doing, let's say, a selfie of your staff outside of, let's say, your headquarters, then, hey, this is your opportunity. <laughs> we're, we're expecting the pixel size to be 40 to 50 meters, so it'd have okay. to be a really, really big staff. Well, you could get a couple hundred people. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. You know. <laughs> the idea being, you know, in a region you want to get a picture of, say, all of the island of Montreal and, and some of the surrounding region, or all of Vancouver and a bit of Vancouver Island, so you know, more of a regional picture, but the fact that it's Somebody right here commanded a satellite and it downlinked it right away. I think will be will have enormous potential as a you know, motivator and to inspire more people to get involved in in space and technology, science, engineering. You know that that path of a future. So you've been at this what eight years now? Um, I, I guess eight. Yes, we almost nine. We started almost at the very nine. beginning of two thousand eleven. Is there going to be a sixth iteration after this one? All indications are yes. Um, the, well, yeah, it doesn't come down to you mostly because you're the, you know, without <laughs> you it wouldn't happen, right? Pretty much. I have a, a very wonderful supportive board. We are a not-for-profit organization um, and I say uh, there's a very wonderful supportive board that helps out as, as much as they can and in many ways that I, I can't. Um, and they, again, they support all of my efforts. And uh, I'm very um, pleased, honored uh, to be able to have them supporting that. Um, but all indications from the universities are that they want to continue. Uh, all the feedback we get from students are uh, is very positive. Um, we we take constructive criticism into uh, into account and try to make it better every time and continue that. Um, unique educational experience the you know yes a neat cool project but putting the management constraints on it that we do and the timeline constraints having the workshops with mentors from industry and experts uh, the review process that we go through you know I, I think it's a really keep using the word uh, unique educational process but a valuable one and, and um, some, my survey of um, former participants from the CSDC and all the ones I've connected to in LinkedIn, about 70 students, and uh, about 50 of them are now employed in space or aerospace positions uh, after graduation. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. A very good percentage. Um, so, going forward, are you proactive in trying to recruit new universities or colleges to be a part of the program or is it you just put the RF 
P or whatever out that says we're going to do you know, the sixth iteration, who's interested? Um, I am a bit proactive. Uh, certainly, I keep in contact. Each team has a faculty advisor uh, at the university, and so I keep the faculty advisors um, informed of what is going on in a new iteration. But it is very much student-run, and so when there is a change of command on the team organization, they always send me an email saying, hi, I'm the new manager for our CSDC team. And when we're coming up on a new iteration, so sometime in the next spring, probably just after we finished at DFL, um, that's when all the teams are there. I'll find out who's interested in participating next year at various conferences. I meet some other university representatives, uh, either faculty or students, talk to them about the CSDC, and if they're interested, I will put them on the list, send them some promotional posters, and see if they're interested in joining next time. One last question. Mm -hmm. um, just for those students who are interested in this, but may not be technical experts in, in, in a field that would relate to satellites, just mention how this is a multidisciplinary effort and who else gets involved in these teams? Sure. Um, well, as you might expect, the core of the teams are electrical and mechanical engineers in the rocket, or sorry, rocket, satellite structure design, analysis, thermal analysis, all part of the mechanical engineering curriculum, um, all the electronic boards, electrical computer engineering. There's computer programming software to run it all. There's the science side, so you can get physics, teams involved, chemistry teams, and or um, biology teams. And we've had various satellites that have had all three types of payloads. You get science um, disciplines involved. Then there's the educational outreach component of it, where each team is required to go out and give a number of public presentations. Um, we put a lot of emphasis at the elementary and secondary school level. And so there is a <laughs> part of it is it's good for engineers to learn how to do this. Typically, stereotypically not being uh, known for their presentation skills. And it is good for them to learn that because it will be a valuable skill in your career. But we've had people from education faculties also involved in the team working on the outreach, um, designing new educational programs, especially again for the elementary and secondary schools. We've had students from commerce, so to do the uh, the marketing, the, the promotional aspects from the team to go out to the community and companies to look for donations, to look for in-kind donations, um, to raise the money through the university and such, so you can have them as well. We've had people from um, more of a management faculty or program, even at the MBA level, I believe, in one case, um, learning some hands-on team management, program management. You're, you're, you're managing the schedule. Where is everybody on that schedule? Um, how do I keep my team happy and engaged? So there are a lot of disciplines, not just engineering, that can get involved in this. And you know, even if you're not with a business background, any good enterprising person can go out and be enthusiastic and um, do a great job of promoting the project to potential sponsors. All right. 
Well, thank you for the update, Lloyd. My pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we would really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.